As the globe experiences a pandemic unlike anything in our recent history, the first wave of coronavirus infections is moving towards a peak, coinciding with some of the world's most sacred religious festivals and celebrations. The Jewish Passover, the Christian Holy Week, Easter, and the Muslim festival of Ramadan. In times of suffering and uncertainty, it is often our religious practices and faith narratives that hold us together, forming a framework for grief and hope. Now, as we remain physically distant, our connection to the outside world and each other has become virtual, as we cling to the news cycle to understand how this virus is progressing and when it might end. When understanding our world and each other means understanding the religious nature of our most important rituals of life and death, what role does the voice of religion have in the media? I'm Tash McGill, and this is Faith in the Time of Corona with Newstalk ZB. We're speaking with Jonathan Merritt, who is both an author and reporter at large on the area of religion. And I'm grateful to have you with us today, Jonathan. And I wanted to ask, what does it look like in your context, being based on the east coast of the USA, to be a a religion reporter, a writer at large? Well, it changes from day to day. Um, But overall, it, it means seeing, watching, observing. And I think you always have to be aware of what's going on. You know, to be American is to be in the midst of a very religious environment. Uh, You can't even really understand America unless you understand religion, and in particular, uh, Christianity, because it's so deeply embedded in our culture. It's uh, deeply embedded into our legal system, into, um, into our communities, and into our lives and, and the cultural myths uh, that we we live according to. And so for me, it just means watching um, and trying to extract out the kind of religious angle that's almost always present when something significant happens in the United States. Do you consider that your primary audience is the religious audience or are you involved in, in kind of a translation of these religious ideas to the broader American community? Well, you know, in the United States, uh, about 70% uh, of our citizens claim to be Christian. Uh, in addition to that, almost 5 to 10%, let's say, claim to be some other kind of uh, religious person. And then you have a number of religiously unaffiliated people. But even these people are not, they're not atheists. Uh, Most of them claim to pray regularly, to believe in a higher power, uh, to have some kind of spiritual practice or orientation or sensibility. And so, you know, if you were to write to non-spiritual or religious people in the United States, there would be very few people to read what you write. And so I try to write kind of um, twofold. One to people who are religious and or spiritual, um, but feel like the dominant expressions of spirituality or religion in the United States uh, leaves a little to be desired, that there's room for critique and for growth. And so I kind of fill that space. I ask the hard questions. And I have the difficult conversations. Uh, And then as a kind of secondary audience are people who just 
they see all of these stories and they recognize the religious nature or the religious uh, undertones of, of what's happening in the United States, whether it's reactions to Pope Francis or uh, the war on terror, uh, um, uh, Islamicists, uh, American Muslim oppression, anti-Semitism, the religious right and Donald Trump, whatever it is, they, they recognize what's going on, but they don't quite understand the why behind the what. And so I try to help folks under understand the why, and that, that requires being kind of a translator. Mm, I think coming from a post-Christian culture such as New Zealand is, and then having this eyes out to the world and observing the way that the American public in particular, but even further afield into parts of Europe, um, there's a much deeper sense of connection to kind of a religious underpinning or foundation of culture that, that therefore influences, you know, the, the narrative and the news cycle uh, in, in the age of corona, um, as we've been affectionately referring to it, um, the way that uh, stories of various religious groups' response to um, the various mandates from both state and federal government uh, have come down has been a source of um, consternation and bewilderment uh, in some parts of the world and yet uh, in in your neck of the woods a very common reaction for people to think that religious freedom and the ability to gather together for example is something that shouldn't be interfered with what kind of role do you see uh, the, the media playing in in helping to navigate and 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 talk about those conversations in the public space well, I think one of the big roles that, that members of the media can play is as educators. Um, they are, you know, the religious leaders in the United States who are making decisions for large, oftentimes large groups of individuals are relying on the media to justify why they should do what we need them to do in order to, um, you know, flatten the curve, as they say. And if the media uh, isn't doing a good job of educating the public, telling them the truth, then you end up with um, undereducated or miseducated uh, religious leaders who can make terrible decisions. And we've seen this. We've seen uh, news stories where uh, outbreaks are the result of religious gatherings. In the United States and in Florida, there was a guy uh, a, a megachurch pastor who went ahead and had a service anyway, he was arrested uh, this week. And a lot of people were up in arms over that. But the media's job is to say, hey, here's why you don't want to do that. Uh, but there is this sort of weird thing in the United States where you have kind of laws that apply to us generally, and then uh, religious communities, organizations, and leaders get a pass. And sometimes it's unclear in the law when they get a pass and when they don't. And sometimes it, it varies uh, from state to state where they're outside of the law or not. In general, in the United States, I always say it this way, the ocean of religious liberty here stops at the shore of the public interest or the common good, you might say. And so anytime uh, you, you're talking about the health of children or other people, uh, the greater good of the society, at that point, your religious liberties don't matter anymore. So it's not an unlimited liberty that folks enjoy here to practice their religion. They can practice it insofar as it doesn't endanger or compromise the common good.
and that seems to me to be a pivotal a pivotal place where somebody like yourself and other religion writers who are who are reporting in the area of religion and politics and science and faith, you know, the, these kind of conflicting uh, ideas and intersectional ideas, there is a role that that you play and, and a real importance and weight to that because your voice is primarily in the mainstream media as opposed to, you know, embedded Christian media or embedded Muslim media uh, where, where you're kind of speaking, you know, with an internal group and an internal conversation. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your book, um, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, which conveniently I brought to New Zealand with me before I became stuck here by the corona. Um, and uh, you, one of the ideas that you talk about in this book is the idea that 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 we are losing our sacred language. And I want to. Um, there's a there's actually a beautiful quote um, that you say: when we lose our spiritual vocabulary, we lose much more than words. We lose the power of speaking grace, forgiveness, love, and justice over others. And it seems to me that that now is one of those moments in time and space where um, that kind of sacred and spiritual vocabulary is going to be increasingly important to the public, not just in the US but around the world, as we start to deal with an enormous amount of grief and trauma and disagreement and anger and blame around the spread of this virus in particular. Um, I'm interested to know... why you think it's so important for uh, for this kind of rejuvenational revival of sacred language, um, and and do you think it applies both at an individual level and also at a public level? Uh, I do, but in different ways, obviously, because here in the United States, you know, where we have at least we claim to have a separation of church and state, uh, there's a kind of religiosity that's inappropriate. Uh, in political spheres, um, but I would say in, in terms of public not being the public sphere, but in general, I think, yes, I think, uh, you know, to have kind of a public-private divide to me oftentimes doesn't make uh, a lot of sense, that the public is an extension oftentimes uh, of the private. But when we talk about language, we're talking about moral language, we're talking about spiritual language, We're not just talking about, let's say, uh, theological words, right? Religious words that um, a word like salvation, Mm -hmm. that's a real, real rigid religious word. I'm talking about words like grace, peace, um, patience, joy. Um, These are spiritual words, sacred words, they're getting at uh, a reality that is something we can't see, that is outside of us and beyond us. These words are in decline, not just in the United States, but in the Western world, generally speaking. And I think most people listening to this would say, you know, when I look around and they think about the world that we live in now versus the world that they were raised in, A lot of people would say, and public opinion polls all over the world bear this out, they would say, you know, the world is less gracious than it used to be. It's less kind than it used to be. It's less compassionate than I remember it being. And I don't think it's insignificant that we've seen declines of 50% or more in the usage of these words in the Western world over the last 100 years. I often say it this way. What we do not talk about, we will not think about. And what we do not think about will not shape our lives. 
and our society and our communities and our families. So we have to talk about uh, sacred ideas, right? Um, um, immaterial, the immaterial parts of the human experience, or we just resign ourselves to the declining power of those immaterial realities in our lives. I think one of the highlights of the response in New Zealand to uh, COVID-19 in particular highlights the importance of that. Um, our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has has led the communication and the messaging around our response to that with the language, be kind, be kind, be kind. And uh, in various places in the community and around the world, that has once again been picked up with some response. It was very similar to the response that she used to the mosque shootings um, of, of March 2019. Uh, I'm curious I'm curious as to where you see um, the role of uh, of religion in the news as elevating that conversation and and pushing people towards towards something better. You referenced yourself as being someone who definitely sits on the on the outer edge of constructive crit- critique. Um, you had a piece recently published in the Daily Beast uh, talking about the requirements of Samaritan's Purse um, to uh, in terms of volunteers working in one of their uh, field hospital responses. Where do you see your role sitting in terms of elevating that conversation, offering constructive critique, but not tearing down something that is also fundamentally good for society in some degree? I see my role not as deconstruction, uh, but more as reconstruction. So I'm not looking to tear down religion or religious institutions or religious leaders. I'm hoping that in the kind of critique that I do, which I, I hope is fair, um, I hope it's uh, kind. I, I never I never want to rage against someone or malign someone. Name calling, rudeness. Uh, you know, even in that article that you cited, it made a lot of people very upset. And uh, all I can say is is that it was it, it had a lot of quotes in it and it had a lot of hyperlinks. And it was a lot, there were a lot of facts stacked next to each other. Now, you may not like my facts. That's okay. You're allowed not to like my facts. But the, the mere act of presenting you with facts does not make me rude or mean or anything else. What I'm trying to do is help people imagine a world where there are not those kinds of facts to tell where I wouldn't be able to say of a religious organization like the one that we're talking about here, uh, you have plenty of reasons to wonder about whether or not they have your best interest in mind. Now, I don't think that an organization like that should be shut down, but I think we have to have these kinds of conversations and we have to have them honestly. But it's it, where I sit is, I sit not just as a critic, but as a kind of imagineer. Mm-hmm. Right, somebody who's helping to to get us to ask questions that could envision a world where faith and spirituality and religion would continue to assert, assert themselves publicly, but to do so in a way that doesn't oppress the marginalized, that doesn't shame people or scold people, or isn't an instrument of pain, but rather an instrument of grace and healing and hope. And we see that happening oftentimes throughout history, and far too often we don't. And when when those things, when, when religion is being misused in a way, 
then you can bet you better expect that I might be showing up at your door. Uh, I'm interested to know are there are there ways that you have seen personally this this idea of religious media or religion in the news uh, be be more dangerous than it's been helpful? Yeah, there there's times there's times that it can be a, a great example uh, in the United States. Um, uh, we have. A, uh, there's a famous quote by an old journalist who was, who was talking about journalists here and said they just don't get religion. And there are uh, a long list of comical errors made in mainstream outlets by people reporting on religion who have no idea uh, about religion at all. They don't know who the players are. They don't know who's significant. They'll, they'll, they'll find a fringy voice somewhere who has no following and present them as a kind of reflective of the mainstream. They'll, they'll flat out misstate what people believe. They're just unaware of the complex and nuanced dynamics that are happening within these communities. And that's a real disservice. Uh, it's a real, real disservice. And you can see it. I mean, I'll give you a great example that's not necessarily related to Christianity. Uh, but when people talk about Muslims, it's as if Muslims are just some giant monolithic group. Uh, but there are actually all kinds of Muslims. There's a big follow up question. Which Muslims? What type of Muslims? The same with Jews in America. There are all kinds of, of movements and streams of Judaism in America. Um, People will often talk about evangelicals as if they're monolithic. They've never been monolithic. And so to be able to tease that out and um, hopefully give people the inner workings of some of these things, I think is helpful. And when people don't do that or they're not able to do that, uh, they don't have the kind of knowledge base you need to communicate this responsibly. I think in that case in particular, uh, it can be very dangerous. There is something that is envious to me about uh, about the American construct, where the fourth estate is still held precious and as a pillar of of what it takes to run a good, functioning, healthy democracy. Uh, and yet, increasingly, the media landscape becomes constricted. It becomes increasingly political. It becomes, uh, you know, more challenging to figure out what's newsworthy, what's publishable, what's going to make a buck at the end of the advertising cycle. Now that we live in this in this online kind of world. Uh, here in New Zealand, we face some of those similar challenges, and yet being in a post-Christian world, one of the questions that we're asking in this series is, what do we, what are we missing by not having the sense of fourth estate and the importance of um, religious news or religious communities being somehow represented in that conversation? Um, and I'm, I'm interested to ask the question, and it's more of a reflection, I guess, how do you see that how do you see that it benefits American society to have those conversations still continuing to be part of the fourth estate? Well, you can you 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 will not be able to make sense of some of the most pressing uh, issues and events in the news right now unless you have an understanding of religion. Uh, you just won't. You can't. You simply cannot understand the election of Donald Trump and the, the political era that we are in 
right now, if you do not understand religion, you cannot. You just absolutely cannot grasp it. It is so central. It is a central force. And I would say beyond even the things that are, that are explicitly religious, there are also things that are implicitly religious. I have a friend who is a, a scholar of, um, of cultural mythology, cultural script. And even the ways in which we respond to things. So think about self-help. Self-help industry is huge. I'm sure it's huge where you are and it's huge here. You cannot even understand certain myths, presumptions of the self-help movement. That, for example, a myth that you have everything within you right now that you need in order to succeed. That is a myth that is religious in nature. It came out of revivalist movements in the Western world in the, or in the late uh, 19th century and early 20th centuries. If you don't understand it, you're not going to get it. You'll never be able to understand why the self-help industry has exploded all over the world. And so uh, you will never be able to understand the African-American experience, the black experience here, which is deeply religious. You'll never be able to understand uh, the explosion of Mormonism. You, you will struggle to understand uh, global conflicts in places like Iran, in places uh, like Israel-Palestine. You'll never be able to understand what's going on here in the United States, here in the Western world, or abroad, unless you understand that. You will never be able to understand uh, the anti-LGBTQ laws all across Africa, unless you understand uh, 20th century missionary movements that swept across that continent in the way that they indoctrinated those countries with certain theologies and views. I, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but we, we it's not ex as if um, modern history just arose uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing. It is connected to a global history stretching back millennia that is deeply religious. And you cannot understand where we are unless you understand where we have come from. And so religion is important, I would say, not just to the fourth estate here in the United States, but to journalism around the world. Mm. Talking about what it means to be a journalist uh, and a writer, what importance and weight does your own uh, your own background, your own heritage, and your own current faith practices play in your ability to translate and dissect and, and do this work of bringing understanding and education and teaching to the broader public? Yeah, so we have a particular um, school of journalism or journalistic philosophy in the United States, and it comes with its own myth. It's a myth that journalists should be unbiased. Now, that's going to be very different than if you if you look at, say, the British School of Journalism, which may be something more like you, you have down in Australia and New Zealand, which says you acknowledge biases, mm -hmm. but, but yeah. there's sort of a, uh, you recognize that you don't eliminate them. I think we are evolving here in the United States. We're beginning to recognize that that was always a myth. Um, there are some who reduce biases better than others, but the idea that we that, that you wouldn't have a bias, um, that's a myth, and we, we have to disabuse ourselves uh, of that, I would say. Um, 
you can hear you can hear the dog in the background, can't you? Yeah, it's so it's before. This is what it means to do radio in the era of coronavirus, right? Because people are are at home and not everybody can go uh, to the studio. Jonathan is right. This is radio in the time of corona, where everything is a little different, and yet we're all still talking to each other to find out the stories, to find out what's really going on. It's just a little noisier and from a distance. In the next episode, we'll talk to Julie Zausma from The Washington Post about how exactly her journalism techniques are having to change. I would say in the United States, that is one of the biggest pieces of this pie. And I am somebody who, who will tell you right off the bat, I come with biases. First of all, I'm an opinion writer. I'm a columnist. Uh, I do analysis. So I'm, a, I'm already off. I'm paid to have an opinion, which means I'm paid to have a point of view. And I also believe that every opinion is, by definition, contextual. Um, I cannot divorce myself. Uh, from the experiences that I've had, the ways that I was shaped, particularly in my most formative years as as a young child, from the way that I grew up in in a home of a megachurch pastor who was a leader of the largest evangelical and Protestant denomination in the United States, to pretend that somehow I can unplug from that and now I have um, unblemished eyes that I don't have those lenses that they're, they're not, there's no filter is it's uh, ridiculous. It's asinine, right? So I'm instead trying to become as aware as possible of my biases and then to try to minimize those. And so, for example, when I wrote this article about, uh, uh, the, about this uh, Samaritan purse in the daily beast uh, yesterday, the published yesterday, I went back and said, okay, where can I acknowledge the other side? And the more that I thought about it, and there were, there were whole sentences in there that I added, and I was like, you know what, that really is, it really is fair to acknowledge it. My biases sorted out that information in a way I can't even fully comprehend when I first wrote it. And so it takes a lot of work to go back and try to minimize your bias while still maintaining a point of view, but I think that's going to be the future of a lot of American journalism. Mm. Do you feel that there's going to, do you feel like there's going to be some sort of um, change or shift or uh, mood of the nation as as the coronavirus in particular, I think presents a very unusual challenge, an unusual and unique challenge. I will not use the word unprecedented, damn it. Um, but a unique challenge to not just American society, at, you know, as a whole, but also the way that America, you know, continues to commentate on its own situation and the role that the media plays within that, you know, whether it's as, you know, uh, news journalism or opinion writing. Um, do you see Do you see that there'll be a change? Do you think that there will be or will things continue? Because I have that question, right? What does, what does the world do when it reaches a point of undeniable global change and shift and how does that change the way we see ourselves and then tell our own stories? Yeah, I think, I think that we are, we're in a period right now where the future of journalism has a, a giant question mark. Uh, hanging over it, just in terms of uh, it is it is now uh, distrusted at, at an unbelievable level in the United States. Uh, 
It is disliked, uh, in part fueled by politicians such as, as, as our president, who uh, have said that the media is, uh, is, an, is an enemy of the American people. And so this kind of, of, of almost violent language, uh, it's a problem. At the same time, uh, it's going to have a positive effect. Like the shadow side always has a sunny side. The positive effect is, is, it, is it is raising the level of our games. It is causing us to be more fastidious, uh, more careful, to, to always check and double check and triple check to make sure we get it right. But in the end, even the types of, of mistakes that journalists have always made, uh, if we make those kinds of commonplace mistakes and if we correct them with integrity, they still become a data point that is feeding a narrative that is snowballing, which is that the media cannot be trusted, that they have an agenda, that they hate certain people and they like other people. And what that has done is, is it has created a kind of bourgeois, uh, it has created a level of quote unquote journalism. People who are just blogging or they're social media influencers who are listened to just like journalists are. Journalists who went to school for this, who have trained for this, who take their commitment to truth telling unbelievably seriously, who are held to certain standards by uh, editors and editorial boards. And then you've got some rogue guy who's tweeting from his, 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 you know, his mother's basement. And both of them appear together, right? Right mm -hmm. there next to each other. And uh, I think we're going to have to figure out what it means to, to sort through levels, the spectrum of credibility that now exists. And I don't know how we're going to do that. Well, because it relies on an education within the public as to, to understand the context and who they're reading and where it has come from, right? Uh, I, rem I remember when I, in a different time in life, when I worked with young people, uh, young adults uh, who were studying philosophy and religion, who were uh, who could not hold together the duality of reading both Piper's theology and Rob Bell's theology, and 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 having to explain and walk through. Well, that's because they're coming from vastly different places on a theological spectrum but that's not necessarily something that's commonplace in the vernacular or the education of your average I would say your average human because learning how to read and learning how to uh, construct opinion and how to think through the process of what you're consuming is is typically something that happens you know in a, in a small sector of higher education typically tertiary and even sometimes beyond that before people really grasp what it means to investigate the source material. Yes. Well, you know, and there and there are two trends that I think have to be acknowledged. One is um, the proliferation of information. Mm. Uh, we just have we have you know when when you were growing up uh, or when I was growing up, you had a few people who were putting out news or media or whatever, and so they were all just news. There was no adjective before them. They weren't left, right, conservative, Christian, you know, whatever. Those, all, there was all of a sudden this proliferation, information exploded. 
It exploded in the form of social media, which has had its own effect, and just in the terms of outlets and even cable news. So when you have more information than can be possibly consumed, the question is, is how do I get people to consume my information and not your information? And there's a natural trigger in that. There's an incentivizing uh, mechanism, right? That is implicit in that model that says, I have to be noisier or more extreme, or I have to move faster, which means maybe I make a mistake because I have to beat you to, to, to print. And there are all these problems that, that are the side effects of the proliferation of media. And I'd say the other is the democratization of media. You know, there was a time when all media was push media, right? I, I, I have a radio show or I have a newspaper. I'm choosing what we should talk about and what we shouldn't talk about. Your job is just to sit there and listen or sit there and read. Now, everybody feels that they should be a part of the conversation. So there's comment sections that are read right alongside the article. There are uh, Twitter threads, right, that people read that affect the whole experience of news consumption. It changes it. So even if the article is as good as it would have been 50 years ago, the way that I read it, that I process it, is totally different because there is a conversation happening around that and the borders between the thing and the conversation about the thing has now been completely blurred. And most people do not have the time to figure out what's the difference between Bell and Piper? What's the difference? They're, they're just having to make snap decisions in the moment so that they can say their opinion back and then move on to the next thing because there are all kinds of things vying for their attention at any given time. How does that context impact the way that you work as a writer? Because you can't, you can't work in a void of that context, right? Yeah, uh, uh, it, it determines what I, I think for me, I have a kind of triaging um, process that I do now almost by uh, muscle memory, where if there are things that I know aren't going to get clicked, they're not going to get heard, they're going to get drowned out, I will find often different ways of disseminating that information. For example, I found that Instagram is a great place to put heartfelt content out, stories, human interest, personal narrative, all of those things. If I took a lot of the content that I put at the Jonathan Merritt Instagram page, if I tried to sell that to the New York Times, first of all, they probably wouldn't take it. But if they did, it wouldn't do well. Mm. Nobody would read it. It's not the right audience. So what you have to begin thinking, you have to begin thinking in terms of, of where the audiences are and which audiences are appropriate for which types of content. And so you have to match the format and the, and the forum with the content. And so there are, there are a lot of folks out there who go, gosh, I just wish that... I wish that the New York Times wasn't doing just all, all they want to talk about is politics. Well, you know what? What do you want them to talk about? Because whatever it is, there's a place for it. Go there. Mm. Now, we can lament the fact that everybody who reads the New York Times is not getting that content, or we can go find an audience for our content. And so what I try to do is I try to find audiences for my content that uh, will, and then I will often cross-pollinate. 
So for example, um, I have a newsletter that I put out. Well, that's going to give you the top five religion stories for the week. But then at the bottom, I will have, um, I'll have a book recommendation. Now, if you go to the New York Times, they've never put a book recommendation at the end of a, of a, a listicle article. Right? They, don't, they don't put a book recommendation at the end of uh, my opinion column. But I can go out and create my own, essentially, what is kind of a quasi-news output delivered right to you to your inbox. And now I can give you really thoughtful uh, books that maybe you would never have encountered. So there's positives and negatives, but I think the best way to at least minimize some of the side, side effects of these trends is to get creative in the way that we disseminate our information as journalists. I have one final question, which is in the current time and space that we are in uh, as the world, but various parts of society within the United States begin to react and respond to COVID-19 in different ways. Is there a particular story that you are most interested in either seeing come to light or telling yourself? Are you talking, you're talking about with COVID? Yeah, just in this particular space and time where that's the dominant news story. I mean, who cares about the election? That's done. It is is the same. what What I believe, maybe not now, because right now, we are in a moment of survival. Mm. And so we need stories about survival, stories that will give us hope. We need sobering stories that, that tell us how serious this is. We need information and education. But there is coming a time, and it will be very soon, where the most important story that any journalist can write, no matter their be, is the way this disruption is going to cause a permanent evolution of society. For me, I'm looking at churches. We will never be able to go back. You will never, because we have had a viral explosion uh, on planet Earth, so this could very well happen again. We are having now resistant, uh, antibiotic-resistant forms of bacteria, uh, so it could certainly happen again in the form of bacteria. Uh, Even coronavirus could evolve. We could have the same situation in the fall or, or next winter. And a church, for example, I believe, will no longer be considered viable or sustainable unless it has a way to transmit its services without physically gathering. I think a church will no longer be able to be considered sustainable unless it has a large portion of its members who are able to donate to their budget, to their operating budget electronically, that don't require people to get together physically and pass the bucket that they will no longer be, be considered sustainable unless they are able to do ministry virtually and to convert quickly from an in-person physical format. And so uh, we're even now seeing that individuals in the United States, I've got some information that I've sort of written an article for the, the Atlantic and I'm holding it right now, but uh, there are people who are saying churches are going to have to have ways to sustain themselves beyond tithes and offerings. They're going to have to have physical spaces that they rent out for apartments, that they're going to have to have for-profit operations, that they're going to have to have uh, uh, non-religious NGOs that they establish that are eligible for uh, government grants because we are now in a period of disruption. And anytime you see disruption, whether it's in advertising or business or anything else, especially in something like this of a global nature that affects almost everything, 
the way that you come out of this is not the way you entered into it. It is like a hammer has fallen. COVID is like a hammer. And there is a just before and a just after. And the, 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 the tools and skills that you will need to survive and thrive in the just after are oftentimes not the skills and the tools that you needed to survive in the just before. And so whether you cover business or economics or politics or religion, there is going to be story after story after story that are going to help us all to chart the way forward to survive in this new moment. You can find out more about Jonathan Merritt at jonathanmerritt.com or online using the handle at Jonathan Merritt. His book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, is worth a read. In the next episode, we talk with religion reporter Julie Zausmer from The Washington Post. And if you would like to talk about anything in this podcast, reach out to me on Twitter, at Tash McGill. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it and subscribe. This series was made with the support of New Zealand On Air as part of the Easter programming on Newstalk ZB. Listener.